either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Technically, it's still January, but we're we're getting out of it, so things are are slowly looking up at the movies. <laughs> we hope so. Anyway, welcome. We'll check out everything new this week. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com, and let's go back a long time ago in a distant fairy tale countryside where a young girl leads her little brother into a dark wood in desperate search of food and work, only to stumble upon a nexus of terrifying evil. This is Gretel and Hansel. Tell me the fairy tale again. It's too scary, you know, start seeing things that aren't there. I'm hungry. I'm hungrier than you are. Because you're a pig. <gasps> Look! It smells of cake! <laughs> Careful with that, dear. I'd hate for you to start something you can't stop. Please make your acquaintance. I'm called Gretel, and this rough one here is my brother Hansel. something wrong here. But it's so pleasant. Where are all the animals? And where does she draw milk? <laughs> Delicious. I know how much you want to say it. I do. I just want to say he's so hot right now. <laughs> Anytime you bring up Hansel, Zoolander reference, Hansel. That was funny. Zoolander 2, horrible. <laughs> but Zoolander has has done pretty well as it has aged. Oh, yeah. I mean, still very quotable. But that gets us off the track. It's not Hansel and Gretel. It's Gretel and Hansel. And it's for a good reason that Big Sister has moved to the top of the marquee. And the first thing that jumps out is this is the latest directing effort, not writing. And we'll talk about that. The latest directing effort for Osgood Perkins. That's right. And I'm a big fan. Uh, we are big fans. So, of course, he's Anthony Perkins, mm-hmm. Norman Bates. He's Norman Bates' son. Yeah. He did... Uh, the Black Coat's Daughter. Black Coat's Daughter. And, and then... I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Right. So both very effective, but both independent. Yes. This is him stepping up to big budget. Right. Big budget. And I think the bigger problem is not so much the budget, but that he didn't write it. Right. Right. So uh, I think that um, one of the things that you really, especially in Black Coat's Daughter, but really in both of those films recognized was his his ability to tell a story visually so in like when you when you look at a picture book uh, a kid's picture book usually the story uh, is told almost independently with the with yeah. the with the pictures the yeah. pictures tell you a lot more than the words do and so he was always able to really capture that uh, in his in the two previous films that he wrote and directed and I think that yes the visuals are glorious in this and he does a really wonderful job creating atmosphere right. adding detail I just feel like the writing doesn't quite match it yeah that's really the thing that that jumps out about this movie is the look of it yeah. and you've probably if you've heard this podcast you've probably heard it say a few times if you want to if you if you get the combination of January January release and PG-13 horror doesn't usually bode too well. Doesn't. But the funny thing about this is it's really a stretch to call it a horror movie. Because right away when I see PG-13, I'm expecting, all right, jump scares. Yeah. But there's not, not at all. really any here. No, not at all. And, uh, and you know, that's another thing that his his prior efforts have not had. And so this is, it is PG-13 because there's very little blood. There's no foul language. There's no nudity. It's, it is a fairy tale. 
but there's a witch in it. There's horror in it. There's body parts. Um, it's but it's <laughs> really spooky, is what it is. Yeah. And the other thing that I like about it is that while it doesn't rely on you know music stabs and jump scares and the kind of things that teens might like, it's definitely directed at adolescent girls. It's a great movie for you know thirteen to sixteen year old girls to watch. Well, let's start off with the young actress who we love, who plays Gretel, and that is Sophia Lillis. So good in both of the It yes, movies, yes. and she just seems a perfect choice for this. Yeah, she's wonderful, and and again, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Gretel gets top billing this time. And instead of being two kids that are about the same age, what you have is uh, maybe a 13-year-old girl and probably her maybe 8-year-old brother. And <clears throat> they've been turned out as, as you know, it's a, the, the thing about Hansel and Gretel is that it is... Maybe the one and only fairy tale that scared the shit out of me as a kid. It's horrifying. I can't imagine why. Just get <laughs> right. in the oven, will you? That's Just right. get in the well, oven. Well, first get lost in the woods and then get in the <laughs> oven. Oh, I, I mean, it did. It, it scared me to death when I was a kid. And so I do. I think it's a very, very effective choice for a horror film. And in this case, though, the whole thing is a coming-of-age story. And it really is a metaphor for that, uh, which a lot of horror films are. But in this case, what I think is, is interesting is that it's kind of, instead of being a cautionary tale, as the, the, the fairy tale was, it's more of a, kind of a, a tale of choices, you know, choosing, you know, agency or responsibility. And I thought, I thought it was done, handled really well. And it's got a good witch, Alice Krieg. I knew right away I recognized those cheekbones. Um, and I knew her from Barfly back in the day. Wow. Yeah. She's, that is back in the day. Yeah, it is back in the day. But she um, she cuts a very interesting presence, and she does a great job of playing this witch. And, yeah, she has turned up in, uh, she was in Thor, The Dark World. She was also in Star Trek fans. We'll remember her in First Contact. But Barfly, that's going back a ways. <laughs> Good eyes out of you. She does a great she just does. She's she's pretty effortlessly creepy, but there's something about her that is I don't know if I want to say tender, but compelling enough that you see why uh Gretel even though she's wary for a while, she doesn't you don't hate this character. You don't hate this witch, which is important for the kind of arc, the Gretel arc. But um, but she is definitely creepy, and everything that happens is creepy, and the look is just, as you say, the look is just gorgeous. And, and I think it takes a different, you mentioned it being a coming-of-age story, especially for this girl into womanhood, but it treats it differently than a lot of horror movies do. We've talked about how the getting your first period yes. uh, <laughs> has been treated as a curse in so many other horror movies, yeah. sometimes well done, sometimes not. But the metaphor of what uh, this girl is leaving behind or having to leave behind and choices she has to make uh, becoming a woman is, I think, treated a little bit differently here. No, yeah, I, I agree. It, you know, that this sort of um, horror genre's hysteria over burgeoning womanhood, mm -hmm. you know, is, is uh, long and deep. And what's interesting is that so often the tone is basically of, well, I think, men looking upon this person who will no longer be sort of innocent and wholesome and can become something. It's just like, oh, my God, oh, oh no, yeah. this is going to happen. And that's well, just go not... Back, just go the, back to the witch that oh, yeah. we love so much. That oh, was yeah. a huge part of that. But you're right, this is not that. There are so many where there is something unseemly about moving into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And this movie doesn't see it that way. It's, it's like they talk a lot about the big, bad world, and, and they see it. 
moving into adulthood from the eyes of the female, which is very uncommon. Yeah, and it's interesting. It is written by a man, mm-hmm. uh, Rob Hayes, who's really done a lot of TV yeah. and a lot of adolescent-themed yes. TV. Yeah. So uh, we've certainly seen, remember just a few years ago, how well Bo Burnham um, oh, yeah. zeroed in on a young yeah. girl's mindset yeah. navigating the world in eighth grade. So it can be done. Yeah. Um, just some of the... You know, thought some of the metaphors here maybe don't land as flush as they could have. Yeah, I think one of the things that for a long part of the movie it has going for it is its dreamy quality. Uh, but at, at a certain point, and, and a lot of times that has to do with the lead character and is she sort of magical and also are, there are drugs and there's, she's eating foods and drinking things and as, as is the boy and so you don't know what's real and what's fantasy. And that works well in a fairy tale kind of a film. The problem is that by the end of the film, it's never entirely clear what's real and what's fantasy. And what that does is make the metaphor that they're getting at a little murky. And mm-hmm. it also makes the action a little murky, which makes the resolution uh, uh, kind of unclear. And I just also and there's a, a voiceover, which generally I dislike, but because this is kind of a storytelling, you know, it's a t- you know what I mean? A fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I think it works all right here. But. Yeah, for for me, the resolution, it just didn't feel, again, it, it did not feel as though the writing was up to par in the way that the visual storytelling was. Yeah, certainly has its moments, though. And, yeah, the visuals still makes us really interested in Oz Perkins, especially if uh, maybe going forward he goes back to writing his own. Uh, definitely interested in that. But uh, that is Gretel and Hansel. One more big nationwide release this week, a woman seeking revenge against those who orchestrated a plane crash that killed her family. It's the rhythm section. I lost my family three years ago. It wasn't an accident. There was a bomb on that plane. I need your help to find the ones who did this. I've got nothing to lose. What about your life? What about it? I'm going to say this once. Even if you succeed, it won't be worth it. Why are you here? To offer your closure. And how would you do that? Violently. Ready for another origin story about the sexy assassin? Do you like the way I say that? I do. This morning. <laughs> One of the radio stations that I call for weekly reviews, I said that. And I say that again. Sexy assassin. I felt like <laughs> I felt like Antonio Banderas. <laughs> but yeah, it's another one of those. And we've seen them a lot lately. Uh, but you know what? We've also seen over the many, many years a lot of male assassin movies. So you know what? That's fine. We could always, as we've said many times, it always starts with the writing, and yeah. you can take the most age-old trope. You can bring something fresh to it. Absolutely. Always. So this is based on a novel mm-hmm. of the same name, and actually, the writer of the novel adapts his own screenplay here. Mark Burnell adapts this, and it stars Blake Lively, and she is really about the best thing about the movie. Keeps it always watchable, and she stars as Stephanie. She's a top notch Oxford student whose world comes apart when, as I said in the synopsis there, she loses her family in a terrorist uh, airplane bombing. And she she really, I mean, she becomes an addict and a prostitute and all these she other really things. She really bottoms out. She bottoms out. But then she's contacted by an investigative reporter who thinks he's on the trail to the bomber. And that puts a, a series of events in motion that leads her to be trained to be an assassin by an ex-MI6 operative Jude Law. Played by Jude Law. 
So right there, um, that's, <laughs> that's one of the biggest, the biggest leap of, of faith you have to take in this movie. There's really not much motivation provided for why he would do that. <laughs> why would you do that uh, and make her this operative? But he does. Okay, uh, we'll take it. And then, we're, and then we're off and running, and we're globetrotting all over the place as she is assumes the identity of a previous agent who is dead, but nobody really knows it. So she takes on a new identity and goes off and tries to find the bomber responsible for killing her family. And then the Jude Law character, he's got some damage in his past, so it's kind of an exercise in exercising, exorcising <laughs> your demons. And, you know, one of the things I liked about it, it, it doesn't really give you a lot of surprises in the spy genre. Right. What's nice, though, is this is directed by a female, Reed Morano. Right. Who has done, she did a movie called I Think We're Alone Now, mm-hmm. and this did a lot of TV. She did some Handmaid's Tale sure, episodes. Sure, And you definitely can tell about the gays, because one of the things, if you're looking for, I, I say sexy assassin, but really, she's never, Blake Lively is never really given much of a chance to be that sexy, which is kind of surprising. Right, because she's a lovely person. She is, and especially early on, she looks terrible. Right. But that fits the character. Sure. But then even when she, okay, she cleans up, okay, now she's ready to kick some ass. Uh, Still, though, it's never that, even when you get to the sequence that seems obligatory, the Red Sparrow moment, you know, mate and kill, it's never in that leering type of camera, Mm -hmm. which you're not used to seeing. No, that's a nice change of pace, because I think you, I think if you were to choose the worst film you saw in 2019, you were going to say Anna, correct? just awful. Which is the worst of those, and even the, I mean, I think we both loved Atomic Blonde, Mm -hmm. and of course, Shirley Theron was glorious in that movie. Mm -hmm. She was clearly a sexy assassin. She I was. mean, you know, there was some leering, although <clears throat> I, I suppose it fit that film, and again, we're fans of the film, but it is nice to see, because, you know, you'll get some of the guy spy movies. The camera ogles James Bond. I'm not going to make it oh, up. Yeah. You know, oh, it's yeah. not like it doesn't, yeah. but you do get some of the guy spy movies where that that's not what it's about. It's about somebody who's just damaged and, and beating people up and killing people, mm-hmm. and it's nice that that's the type of film we finally get to see a female lead in. Yeah, but there's a lot of the same, the, the, the familiar beats about these types of movies, and uh, the direction is fine most of the way through. I mean, she does set up some nice, there's a real nice car chase. There's some nice fighting. Uh, Blake Lively is certainly up to the physicality of mm-hmm. the role. She really is. But it just seems really in search, it seems desperately in search of a style that never gets pinned down. Right. I mean, these soundtrack choices, these cute uh, insertions of pop songs and maybe some old pop songs just seem really, really forced. And there's numerous soft focus flashbacks to good times with the family that just after a while that seems a little heavy, seems a little pushing and really trying to get a style that can never really find its own groove, I think. But um, it's still it's it's always watchable. Blake Lively, I think, sometimes maybe is a little underrated. I, I think, think. Yeah, She's I think done that's some possible. Fine, yeah. She's done uh, some fine work uh, here in the last few years, and this one, she's she's really the thing that, that keeps it afloat. Then you have, of course, because it is a movie, you have Sterling K. Brown. Who, <laughs> I mean, well, is you know anybody what? more busy? Yeah. Now that I think, I think Common has taken some weeks off because a couple of years ago he was in every movie I've, I saw. Oh, sure. And now it's Sterling K. Brown, who's but great. Don't get me I wrong. I was going to say, that's, that's quite a step up. <laughs> Nothing against Common. Yeah. But Sterling K. Brown, he's just, I would love to see him in every movie. No, he's he, always just amazing. He really is good, but it just seems like in some of these smaller roles, he just went along, okay, all right, and just walking by. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do, be in this I'll one. I'll help yeah. you out here. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. He, he, no, he always is a welcome presence because he's really good. 
good, and he's good in this in a smaller part about an ex. He's an ex CIA uh, contact, who, who uh, our operative, who may have some valuable contacts that could help Stephanie out. So familiar, as we said, familiar spy beats, but uh, it's. I think it never, it never ceases to be watchable. And, and again, I, I say as we get toward the end of January, we're we're kind of on an upswing. So yep. things are getting better. Right, right, right. Not quite there yet, but uh, <laughs> most of the time, it is. Uh, it keeps your interest, and that is the rhythm section. Got a few smaller releases, a couple of documentaries, a couple of animated films, all Oscar-nominated, uh, getting some release this weekend. And it starts in post-industrial Ohio, right here. A Chinese billionaire opens a factory in an abandoned General Motors plant, hiring 2,000 Americans. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America, its American factory. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. Nothing in America has changed in terms of working people working hard. What changed in America was rich people deciding they wanted to rewrite the rules to take advantage of people. You never give up on the American dream. To me, that would be un-American. So this one's nominated for Best Documentary. It's Julia Reckert and Stephen Bognar, both who live in Dayton. Dayton. Mm-hmm. And they, it's basically, in a, in a weird way, it's sort of a sequel to their Oscar-nominated short from a few years ago right. called The Last Truck. And you got to interview her a few weeks ago. I did, because they did a retrospective of her entire career, which is really quite amazing mm-hmm. as a documentarian, at the Wexner Center for the Arts here in town. Yeah, and this is where we differ, because I think this is going to win at the Oscars, and you don't. Well, I'm giving the edge, I guess, to Honeyland because it's... I love Honeyland. Don't get me wrong. I love love this movie, too. It's just that Honeyland is nominated in two different categories, and so I just feel like that gives it more momentum. I can see that. But this is a great movie, and one of the things that... I love about the approach that these filmmakers take. It's 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 the fly on the wall style that they don't even try to lead you. No. And and you just sometimes ask yourself, how did they get in this room? Right, right. I agree with you. Sometimes it's one of those deals where um, they do know the camera is, right. is rolling. Right. Because the culture clash is fascinating. It is. It really and you're is. Right, it never takes sides. It doesn't. And that's what I I think. That's the only way this movie works. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you'll see uh, it, the, the the Chinese employees are being coached on how to sort of, you know, work alongside Americans. And they're being told things like Americans think they're very special. <laughs> Even the ones we don't know why they think that, but right. they just think that, and they, you know, they're sort of they're sort of forewarned that Americans speak very bluntly and that they're allowed to. They say they're even allowed to joke about their president and nothing happens. <laughs> Which is, it's a fascinating scene. But then, you know, she's, you give just as much space to Americans and sort of the ways that the culture clash happens on either side. It's never hateful. Right. It's always just fascinating. And in some cases, in some, between some of the employees, there's a real bond yes. connected oh, a, across those differences mm-hmm. and across those views on work and life yeah. and how they mix and how they don't. Yeah. It really is totally fascinating, especially when you make it, as you said, pretty much a sequel to a story they've already covered right. with a short. Right. And now they followed up with a feature. I, yeah, I thought it was endlessly fascinating. Yes, absolutely. And definitely 
maybe one of the favorites I would say. <laughs> to win. Uh, Oscar-nominated American Factory. Next up is a political documentary and personal memoir colliding in an exploration into the complex truth behind the unraveling of two Brazilian presidencies. It's the edge of democracy. I was 19 when Lula got elected. I remember the excitement. It felt like a huge step in our democratic path. 20 million people leaving poverty. Unemployment reached the lowest number in history. And Brazil rises as a major player on the world stage. But something in our social fabric started to change. The country divided into two parts. And this wall would rip us apart. Another Oscar nominee. Yeah, and it's another riveting story. Uh, the documentarian is Petra Costa, and it's really half... Half documentary, half personal memoir, because she finds a way to really weave her family's story into the story of Brazilian democracy. She pretty much says she grew up with the democracy in in Brazil. And I think the, if I get the year right, I think it was 1985 when the military, the string of generals that were ruling under a military dictatorship finally ended. And her family before that, her parents were basically freedom Freedom fighters fighters that had to go into hiding. Uh, to to save their lives, basically. So she's very got a very personal stake in this, and you feel that, uh, which sometimes is a little bit of a, a little bit of a detriment to the film. But it's still it's it's fascinating in telling a very sadly familiar story as it gets to the point of early hope. I mean, it focuses on uh, Lula, they call him, who was elected president in two thousand two, and some of the according to the director, and according to many Brazilians that she puts on camera, just they speak lovingly of the economic progress made. And when he left office after two terms in 2010, he had an 87 percent uh, approval rating. We see Barack Obama call him the most popular politician on earth at the right, time. Right, right. And then his hand-picked successor, Dilma, well, who was a former militant herself, uh, she was elected and then uh, in 2010. And then a few years later, well, the economy started to stumble. She announced a crackdown on corruption. And then uh, the knives came out, leading to what the documentary calls the coup of 2016. And now leading to, and the, the president now of Brazil, Bolasaro, I think his name is, is pretty much a, a Trump clone, yes. really. And yeah. it, it, you see how this hope of democracy gave way to just primal populism and and a, and a leader, an authoritarian, authoritarian leader who is out, outwardly bigoted and yells about fake news, and it just seems so sadly familiar. And that- I think also, you know, it, it reminds you of, of things like um, the Kingmaker, right? Mm-hmm. The Philippines oh, documentary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just it seems like there have been so many documentaries in the last year to just to just pinpoint how country after country after country. It's just the bullying mm-hmm. of the world yeah. seems to be what's happening right now. Yeah, it's very sobering. And of, and of course, as I said, the difference here is that she really makes it a personal me- memoir as well, which can be really affecting. And other times her narration, because she narrates it, and her narration is very leading. It, it, it really asks you to assume a lot right, than right. just her opinion. Because Truthfully, you you don't have to work too hard to find some accusations against Lula and against Dilma and their party, the Workers' Party, that, to me, don't seem that flimsy. But still, she makes a good case that uh, that, uh, their ouster, their party's ouster, was stinks to high heaven. 
and it does. It seems really sadly, sadly familiar and, and relevant right now, and it's it's still it's it's constantly compelling, and it's a uh, a really nice uh, weaving of a memoir and a documentary that just, except for those moments where she's a little bit leading um, in her in her opinions that we just expected to accept carte blanche. Other than that, it's very, very solid, The Edge of Democracy. A couple of Oscar-nominated animated features. Next up, the first is A Simple Act of Kindness, always sparking another. Even in a frozen, faraway place, it's called Klaus. Hey, what do you guys think you're doing? This is Smearinsburg, the unhappiest place on Earth. And you two can't change that. The postman and toy maker are brainwashing everyone. We need to show people that a true selfless act always sparks another. Hi. What's happening right now? Oh, no. Holy mother! Jasper, we're doing it. Let's go! Oh, oh, oh! Wait, wait, wait. Time out. Really? That's how you laugh? This one really surprised me. I When I saw it uh, nominated, I was like, oh, what's that? Obviously, I had an idea with the name, but I'd never heard of it. And then when we watched it, I was just smiling. I was totally enchanted with it. Yes, it's really charming. It's so charming. And it's it's definitely not... I mean, I think it toes a very interesting line in being, if you haven't guessed, a Christmas film. Um, <laughs> An and, origin story, if you will. Yeah. And it because, you know, so often in a Christmas film, first of all, they're very sentimental. And then you've got to have that sort of sense of wonder, which often makes it kind of tough for an adult to watch. And I think this one just balances that beautifully. Yeah. And it's really engaging um, animation mm-hmm. and some really engaging voice work led by Jason Schwartzman as a postman who is sent to this faraway, cold, un- unhappy like village to be a postman. And then he meets up with Klaus, who is to become the big guy, who is voiced wonderfully by J.K. Simmons. And that's just a, the the two lead voices. And then you also have Rashida Jones is a voice. Joan Cusack. Yeah, Joan Cusack, Norm MacDonald. Oh, yeah, Norm yeah. MacDonald's a stitch in this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and you, and you think to yourself, well, how are they going to make a postman become part of Santa Claus? Well, they do it. And it's it's funny and it's charming and I just thought yeah I, it's not going to win no. animated because don't even blaspheme and say that anything is going to beat Toy Story four don't you blaspheme in here don't you do it but this is really worth seeking out um, uh, now or especially if you want to bring it back up again at the end of the year for yeah, the holidays because yeah. this is really it was very quiet it just slipped through the cracks it did it, it did it, it's a Netflix film and I have the feeling well I mean they had some they had some heavy hitters this they year did. They and did. so my guess is maybe they just didn't think this was going to do that well. <laughs> For them, and then out of nowhere, just like Link, it had an Oscar nomination. Exactly right. This is uh, the the co-writers and directors Sergio Pablos and Carlos Martinez Lopez. Want to give them credit because I yeah, I just thought it was a real a real blast of fun and yeah. just absolutely charming. And definitely recommend seeking out Klaus. And finally, another animated feature nominee is the story of Nofol, a young man who falls in love with Gabrielle. In another part of town, a severed hand escapes from a dissection lab determined to find its body again. It's I Lost My Body. This is the latest from the writer of Emily, and it's in French with subtitles, and I loved it. I really loved everything about this film. I love that it it basically opens... Like a horror film, right? You've got this, you've got this, you know, severed hand in a lab and it's crawling around, you know, thing like from the Adams family, just crawling around and hiding and 
and then the sort of feats that it goes through to get one spot to the next to the yeah. next. And it has to defeat rats in the subway. I mean, <laughs> I, I was know. just riveted. I know. You know, and then and then I, and then I just was like, and it turns into not a horror movie at all, but a really lovely sort of a coming of age tale and a bit of a fable. And it's a, a great first feature. The writer and director is Jeremy Clapin. And, yeah, it's it's really assured, and it is. It opens in a, oh, we're talking about a severed hand here. Yeah. You're right. Crawling across town. That's kind of creepy. But then it becomes a really touching, uh, very sweet fable. And not to say that you don't kind of guess where it's going. Right. But that's okay. Yes. Even, even when you do, it's the way it gets there. And plus the animation is always very engaging. Oh, it is. The whole thing feels... Really poetical to me. The entire film, poetic, does the the look of it, the the way one scene flows into the next. I loved the voice work, um, and mm-hmm. and I love the colors. Yeah, and let's just give a shout out for. I think in all the bones that we have to pick well, every year with the Academy and the Oscar nominations, they have a really great group of animated yes, features here this do. year. Yes, they do. Yes, they really they do. do. Because the easy thing would have been to nominate Frozen 2. Yeah. Um, and not that it was horrible. It no. wasn't. But it doesn't deserve an Oscar nomination when you look at this group of five. They're great. They are. And I love, yeah, they chose three films that basically no one saw. Yeah. Link, which came out nationally and bombed. And then two movies. Missing Link, right? If anybody's looking sorry, for it. Missing Link. Yeah. Missing Link, mm-hmm. which is a gorgeous, it's it's a great. gorgeous movie to look at. And then, the, you know, the uh, Claws, which no one had heard of, and and I Lost My Body, which very few people then, have heard of as well. And then, you've, uh, how great was the last um, How to Train Your Dragon? Oh, yeah, I know. Fantastic yeah. movie. Yeah, every then, single one. All five of those films are just top-notch. Yeah, and Toy Story 4, of course, sits at the top. You knew that already, but they all are very, very good. It's just a great group, and kudos to the Academy for picking out not only the big ones that, that made a bunch of money, as the top two did, right. but uh, some smaller films that definitely deserve it and are very worth seeking out. And I Lost My Body is certainly one of those. And good luck to all the nominees. And that takes us to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Well, speaking of Oscar nominees, look who's out on home video this this week. Get it. Get it now. Parasite. So great. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, now is the time. Watch it right this minute. And it's funny how we've been saying that for so long, and people that we know just keep stopping by. They saw it. We saw it. We loved it. Yeah. We hear that from everybody. It's sort of like how we mentioned, we've mentioned, we haven't run to anyone or heard anyone anywhere that doesn't like Knives Out. Yes. Sort of the same thing here. Um, now, maybe not everybody has liked it as much as we do, right, right. but everybody, I don't know how you can't like it. I don't either. It's, it's well, one of the things is that, uh, and we've said this before, Bong Joon-ho, watch every single thing he's ever made. He has such a knack for human stories, for, one of the things I love about all of his films is that everybody knows somebody who's funny. Mm-hmm. Right. But a lot of times in dramas, no one's funny. Mm-hmm. But he knows that people are just funny. They Human are. beings yeah. are funny. This movie is by no stretch a comedy. But the, the characters feel very realistic, they which do. is important because they don't do anything that you expect them to do. That's exactly right. And even uh, Sean, one of the co-hosts of the uh, Good Day Columbus the TV show we're on every Friday morning. She told us early on she doesn't do subtitles. Yes. And we finally broke her down, and she finally went to see Parasite, and this morning she said she loved she it. She loved it. Phil loved it, too. So there you go. We recommend it. And uh, we think, well, we, we know we're pretty s- 
sure. It's a lock to win best foreign language feature. I think that's feature. the lockiest of all the locks, the lockiest. yes. Um, and I, I think it's not going to win, but I think it has a chance. Uh, best uh, picture. Best picture. I think I really you're right. Do. I don't think any foreign language film has ever had such a good shot as this does. Right. We were really pulling for Roma a couple of years ago, but I think this has a better chance even than Roma did. I do, too. Did then, so we'll see. Harriet comes out this week, uh, the Oscar-nominated lead performance by Cynthia Erivo. She's great in it. She is so great in it. And the thing is, I mean, she plays Harriet Tubman. And uh, the first thing to say is it is about goddamn time that there was a big, <laughs> massive. I mean, there have been TV movies, there have been small movies. But this is the first big, massive film mm-hmm. about one of the greatest American heroes. It's amazing what she accomplished. It amazing. really is. And I think we have talked about this before. The film almost it's almost a uh, an action film. Mm-hmm. It almost takes an action hero approach. Superhero which, type, yeah. Which makes it seem very weird for a biopic, a historical drama biopic. But then when you really, especially considering what a physically small human being she was, when you just try yeah. to wrap your head around what this human being accomplished, you start to go, well, she'd have to be superhuman. You know what I mean? You just <laughs> yeah. really would. I know the movie yeah. got, got a lot of flock from a lot of people, but I think we both thought the film was Fully enjoyable, and her performance was quite amazing. Yeah, so definitely that one worth seeking out if you missed it. And another indication that I have no ability at all to pick what's going to be a hit. Uh, Terminator Dark Fate comes out. A tremendous bomb. Oh, one of the biggest bombs of 2019. We both liked it a lot. We did. I thought it was just (laughs) incredibly enjoyable as a way to, you know, update this war horse. It's another one of those where they completely forget a lot of the sequels that mm-hmm. came before it, and that's fine with me. Well, you know what? In a movie that... And they make the point. When a movie jumps times <laughs> like this franchise, right. you can. You can do. You know, yeah. they're, they're changing history all the time, so yeah. that's okay if this is what happened. You know, just last week we talked about The Turning, which stars Mackenzie Davis, right. and this has already sunk out of sight, which it deserves to. And this is this is the one that I thought was really going to catapult her yeah. because she's good. She is, but good. she's in these movies that nobody goes to see. Before this, it was Tully, and she was good in that. But this one was, it was. I thought it had everything. I guess what it doesn't, what it didn't have was interest for a franchise that is so old. Apparently, well, that could be what it is. Although Schwarzenegger was hysterical. He had the funniest lines in this movie, funnier than anything he's ever been in ever. And Linda Hamilton, you know what? 100% do I buy her as a badass. And I thought that their rapport was very funny as well. Now, I I know, I won't spoil anything, but I know it does something early in the film that a lot of franchise fans were not happy with whatsoever. Okay, I get that. But overall, I thought it was very enjoyable, and I was really surprised that it tanked. So if you missed it, and you want to Catch it. There it is. It's out on home video. So next week, we're really looking... I'm sure this will change, but right now we're looking at one big nationwide release. I know how excited you are. I can't... I have zero, zero anticipation for Birds of Prey, Yeah. the Harley Quinn. Uh, hopefully it'll change my mind, but I've seen the, the trailer several times and no interest. Yeah. No interest whatsoever. We'll see about we that. We will see. <laughs> Until then, let us know what you thought about the, these movies or any of the others. And by the way, we want to say thanks to Alex. We got a nice email... <laughs> From Alex, who said, was he on a plane? He said he was on a plane, and he laughed out loud at our Bad Boys for Life review. (laughs) See, we can be funny, like the people (laughs) in Parasite. Especially when we don't like a movie, and everybody else does. But uh, thank you for that, Alex. Appreciate it. So, hey, if you want to get in touch, we're always good, always glad to keep the conversation going on Twitter. That's the easy way. You can find us at MadWolf, M-A-D-D. W-O-L-F, also on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews, our other horror movie-only podcasts called Fright Club and other fun stuff, 
That's always at the main website, which is madwolf.com. And thank you, as always, for stopping by the screening room. If you would do us a favor and just subscribe, rate, and review, we would be forever indebted. Yes, we would. So until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.